What's up everybody and welcome back to Momentum Online. Even more importantly than that, welcome back to our series, The Bible No One Told You About. Now we've been on break for this series. We did Easter, we did some Easter follow-up and some groups messages, but we're going to dive right back in to the Bible no one told you about. Now, as you heard Jeremy explain earlier, there's all kinds of cool stuff coming up at Momentum. Our Mom's Day event in the park, 9.30 a.m., the Kids Self-Defense events are coming up. But here's the thing. All of that, if you need info about them or to sign up or you hear something you're excited about, you're going to see this QR pop up on the screen from time to time. Don't be alarmed. It's not a mistake. As a matter of fact, it's there on purpose because if you take your phone and scan it, if you're not familiar with these, you just open up your camera app and, and your phone will usually just grab it and give you a little link at the top. That'll take you to information about everything we got coming up or to registration links. So don't worry when you see that. It's there on purpose for your convenience uh, so you can get connected and stay connected to everything we got going. Now, we haven't been in this series for a while. Let me lay a little foundation. As you may know, our goal at Momentum is not to simply reopen our church, but we want to relaunch our church. Uh, we don't want to just say, hey, on this day, our doors are going to open, so come join us. We want to be intentional and strategic about relaunching our church, and our community. And so we've said as a team, we're not just a group of people waiting for our church to open, but we're a launch team looking for ways to serve and relaunch our church and our community. Now, here's what I know. We're going to be pouring ourselves out at a higher capacity over the next few months. There's going to be more to do, uh, more intentional living, and we're living lives that simply aren't about us. So to do that, it is important for all of us to dig deep wells. If we're going to be pouring ourselves out, we've got to be filling ourselves up. So that is unapologetically what this series on Scripture is about. We want to deepen your well and introduce you to the deep things of Scripture. I'll tell you a little more about this series. It's for you. If you've been curious about God and, and, and there's been a part of you who's really wondered who God is and what He's about, but you never had time, this series we're opening up God's Word and we're letting it teach us, guide us, and direct us. No religion, no funny stuff, no tradition. We're just opening up Scripture and letting it speak. Uh, I'll tell you also, if you been hungry spiritually, like if you've been a spiritual person, but not necessarily a religious person, if, if you've been craving spirituality, but haven't known where to look, this is for you. And then finally, let me tell you something. If you've been walking with God for some time, but you've always desired a deep and raw look at scripture, this is your series because we're going to go places in scripture that we don't usually go. And we're going to let it say things no matter how offensive, controversial, or, um, or how unused to them we may be. So if Scripture goes there, we're going there too. Now, again, it's been a while, so let me catch you up on where we are. We're going to be talking today about Moses through the book of Exodus. So in your Bible, first book would be Genesis. That's where we spent our first few weeks, and now we're talking Moses. Here's a timeline for you so we can anchor this in its historical place or the place in Scripture. We started with Adam and Eve, and we spent a few weeks talking about God's divine design. After Adam and Eve would be the story of Noah and his ark. After that comes the history of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, Abraham was the last guy we talked about in this series. God wanted to launch a salvation story through history. So he does it by raising up a man who would become a nation that would one day send a savior into the world. And that's exactly what happens as you go through the pages of Genesis. God is turning a family into a nation. So Abraham has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, who has a son named Joseph. And 
<clears throat> I'll tell you, these guys here really set the stage for what we're going to be talking about when we talk about Moses. Um, if you want to use a pop culture reference, maybe you saw the musical or the play Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Now, I'm not a big musical guy, but in high school I dated a girl who was into theater, so I've seen a few. And one that I saw was the story of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. That's actually a very well done piece of pop culture. It follows the narrative in scripture. The people of Israel do grow and become a great nation. There is a famine in this time, uh, right around the life of Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in Egypt through God's divine protection, um, through God's design, divine provision. He becomes uh, an Egyptian official, uh, almost second in command to Egypt's pharaoh. So this young man named Joseph becomes one of the top leaders of the national superpower Egypt in this time. This really happens. Now, what happens next is some time goes by. So Joseph is a great leader. People love him, respect him. Many Israelites move to Egypt for the safety and protection that can be found in that time. They grow and they multiply. Scripture tells us that they do, in fact, begin to flourish. They do, in fact, become a great nation. They do, in fact, grow in number in Egypt. However, time goes on. And as time goes on, eventually Joseph would pass. And eventually people would forget about Joseph's legacy, Eventually, people would forget about Joseph's God, and eventually, people would forget about the importance of Joseph's people, Israel. So in Egypt, set of laws, and um, how would you describe this? A, a set of unjust practices and exploitive practices and, and, and legislations slowly take this growing nation, Israel, and reduce them to a slave class in Egypt. They're God's promised people, but they find themselves eventually in captivity in Egypt. It goes from just being second-class citizens to, in fact, becoming slaves. It says through Scripture that the people of Israel were used for labor in Egypt's great construction projects. For years, they were a people of promise, but for 400 years, I wish I had one with me, their life just becomes bricks. Egypt developed construction habits and used large bricks to build all kinds of different things in, in their time. And, and the Israelite people were the ones who made bricks. And over and over and over, their life was about building things with bricks, making the bricks themselves, and taking bricks places for Egypt. Over and over and over, no promise, no miracles, no God speaking to them, just bricks. But through history, God decides to move again. Through history, God decides to launch another rescue plan. And through history, in the nation of Israel, a young baby is born and his name is Moses. Now, in this time in Egypt, the Israelites were growing in number so fast uh, that the Pharaoh decided that the firstborn children and young baby boys should be killed to slow down the growth of this nation. 
And so maybe you've heard it before. See, I learned about the story of Moses for the first time in the Charlton Heston movie that called The Ten Commandments. You remember this guy? We would watch it around Easter time. Or maybe you remember it from the Disney movie, The Prince of Egypt. Maybe you remember the story, but Moses doesn't start out this mighty leader. He's a young Israelite baby who's placed in a basket, floated down a river right where Pharaoh's daughter was going to be. Pharaoh's daughter sees Moses in a basket and all of a sudden this law about killing babies gets real because she sees an actual child, this Israelite baby. She falls in love with this young child and then decides she needs to raise him. So the story unfolds. Moses is born in the slave class of the Israelites, but raised as Egyptian royalty. And some time goes on. And we don't know, but by, when you read between the lines, you can tell that Moses must have known about his mixed identity and wrestled with it. But eventually, he's out walking and he sees a, an Israelite slave being beaten by an Egyptian. He himself is moved in that moment, attacks the Egyptian. The Egyptian ends up dying. Moses feels cornered. He doesn't know where to go. His back is against the wall, so he flees. Now we often see, you can just read a few lines in Scripture in the book of Exodus and see that Moses ran, but you don't want to miss how big a deal this must have actually been. He runs away from his nation. He runs away from his home. He runs away from his income. And he runs away from his God. And he tries to get to a place where no one will know him and no one will see him. Until you get to Exodus chapter Now, I got to talk to you about Exodus chapter 3 for a moment because we're going to go all the way through the book of Exodus, and it's a large book indeed. But this is just a Bible study tip as we're in this Bible No One Told You About series. Uh, Sometimes a certain book of the Bible will have a keystone chapter. You guys are familiar with this because in TV or in miniseries, some miniseries have keystone episodes or keystone moments. My family, fell in love with the show The Mandalorian. And there was that moment early in uh, in the series when when Mando was trying to rescue rescue Grogu and and they have to fight that huge sand creature. I don't remember what the heck it was. I don't know the name of it, but I know there's that large thing and it's about to attack Mando once and for all. And then right at the last moment, at the end of that episode, Grogu does this little maneuver and he uses the force and everybody freaks out because you realize that something spectacular is coming on the back end of this. There's more here than I thought there would be. Some Something real is about to happen. It flows from this moment in this episode when we get to the book of Exodus in the third chapter Chapter 3 is a keystone moment. It's one of those ones you read and you realize things are about to change. Things are about to be different. This moment is going to shape all the moments that come after. And that's exactly what we see when we get to Moses in chapter 3. See, he's run from Israel. He's in this land called Midian. He's settled down there. He's married a woman. He's got a father-in-law, a bunch of people who doesn't know him. He's essentially started his life all over again. And he's out tending some sheep. Exodus 3, verse 1 says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and I'll see this strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. And oh, by the way, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face and was afraid to look at God. You know, honestly, we could make a sermon on these words, and it's just the introduction. First of all, I heard it said Moses was probably not a really quick perceiver because, you know, we'll credit him for seeing a bush and noticing something's up there. But then when he encounters himself in God's presence in front of a bush that seems to be burning up, a quick perceiver would have said, man, you you are eternal and I am not. You are going to just keep burning and burning and burning. You didn't have a beginning. It doesn't appear that you have an end. Although I am just a mere mortal in your presence, it appears that you could consume me and if you can burn this bush uh, from nothing you could consume me as well there's a lot that Moses could realize but we will say to his credit he eventually realizes that he's in the presence of God so he takes off his shoes and hides his face and he begins to have a life-changing encounter with God in verse 7 it says this the Lord says I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt And I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. Maybe you've heard these words before, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So then, God makes it known that He's watched what's going on in Israel. He's come to deliver, and He's come to use Moses to do so. I love Moses' response right here because it's so human and it's so unpolished. Moses said to God, hang on now, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and then they ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, we just blew through so much theology in these simple verses. I want to unpack it with you. In these verses, we just learned God's nature, God's character, and God's name. God's nature, God's character, and God's name. Let's talk about them. Let's talk about God's nature. I want you to observe some of the language in this passage, these, these, these action words that are associated with our God. See, God shows up to Moses and he says something powerful. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. That's God's nature. He's a God who sees, who hears, and who is in fact concerned with the affairs of humanity. Uh, The theology of deism states that God created everything, gave the globe a spin, he's gone, he's not involved anymore, he's off doing something else. Our theism in Christianity is a God who is present and concerned about the affairs within creation. It comes from verses like these, God sees, God hears, and God is concerned. I also love this because, see, these are three different levels of connection. I want you to think about if you've ever taken a child to, to a park outside. Any good parent, any caretaker who's worth a darn, 
would experience all three of these emotions. See, I don't just stay where I can see my kids at the park. I could see my kids from a mile away, but I stay close enough to hear them. So if something were to happen to them, or if I were looking down and I hear a kid fall and cry, I know that kid's cry and I can hear it as well. See, you can see from a distance, but to hear you have to be closer. But God just doesn't say, hey, I'm watching, I'm observing, I'm listening to the suffering of my people in Egypt. He goes another step further and he says, and I'm concerned about it. It's a whole other level of connection. At at the park with your child, they fall. You see them fall. You can hear them fall. But if it doesn't move you, there's something missing. And here we have a God. We see his nature. He is a God who hears. He's a God who sees. But he's not just a God who observes. He's a God that is concerned with our lives as well. He was concerned about the hard times that Israel was going through, and he is concerned about your life as well. That time you were abused, that time that you keep trying to pack down, but it keeps unfolding in your life and shaping parts of your reality. Can I tell you something? God saw you in that moment. He heard your cries in that moment, and he was concerned as well. The time that that they lied to other people about you, And a season of your life was marked by betrayal. You don't just have a God who's saying, ah darn, there it goes again. Too bad about what happens down there on earth. You had a God who was present with you. That time you were under so much pressure, you thought you were going to break. Maybe you saw him, maybe you didn't. Maybe you knew it and maybe you didn't. But there was a God in that moment with you. He was seeing it. Oh, he heard you. And his heart was moved as well. That's a big deal. Because anyone who's ever truly gone through something in this life, anyone who's ever actually suffered knows that sometimes what is even more important than a solution what is even more important than having the suffering alleviated is having someone who gets you. Because usually that is where true healing is found. My friends, put that next to your problem. My friends, put that next to your wounds, your scars, and your baggage. There is a God who gets you. We get God's nature in this passage. And we also get God's character. It says that God not only saw what was going on, but he wanted to get involved with it. Let's talk God's character. So I have come down. I've seen what's going on. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of a land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with, as we said, milk and honey. God's nature. This is God's nature. He is a rescuer and a deliverer by his very nature. He is a God who rescues and delivers. This isn't something God does from time to time. It is something that God is in our lives. Rescuing and delivering isn't just this hobby that God has. It is something that is woven into the fiber of his being. God, let me tell you something, is passionately committed to your freedom and flourishing. God is disturbed when he sees something in your life 
holding you back from everything he has made you to be. Let me ask you a question. If this is true, what is your relationship with the commandments of God? When you think about the rules that you hear, and they're in there. I mean, we're a grace church. We are a freedom and forgiveness church. But we know that grace doesn't make sin safe. And there are things that are wrong. There are things that stand in the way of human flourishing. We call those sins. And, and, And usually in Scripture, we're given ways to live and rules and a pattern and commandments that help us walk the path to life in God. Can I tell you something? When you see God as a rescuer and a deliverer, when you see God as somebody who's passionately committed to your freedom and your flourishing, your relationship with the laws of God begins to change. If God is an abusive parent, an uninvolved dictator, or an absent-minded enforcer, oh, then his rules, they're to keep me from experiencing some stuff out there that I really want to experience. And I'll check those out some other day. But if God in his nature is a rescuer and he's about deliverance, his laws are a gift. His laws enable me to live more freely in the world around me. God, by His very nature, He rescues and delivers. That means in His voice and in His words are words of freedom and flourishing. Let's roll. We also get God's name. I love the language. It's back up in the passage. You don't have to go there. But but Moses says to God, Okay, suppose I go. And and that's just gutsy right there. If God shows up, calls you by name, has a meeting one-on-one with you, and you go, Eh, it's a... Suppose I take you up on this offer, Lord. I don't know why I said it, but I like it. But he goes, who should I say it is that sent me? You know, we know you're God. We know about Abraham. We know your plan. But we don't know your name. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Hold on, underline that. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God's name is I am. This would later get interpreted and changed into Yahweh, if you've ever heard Yahweh. But it comes from this moment in Scripture when God says, My name is I am. My name is I am. I am here. I am with it. I am. Uh, I heard my, one of my favorite pastors, Louis Giglio, says, If you conjugate God's name, it is literally to be. It is the fact, I am the all-existing one. I am the one that always was. I am, I am. That's his name. David Guzik, a commenter that I read from time to time in preparation, said it like this. The name I am has within it the idea that God is completely independent. That he lo- relies on nothing for life or existence. Theologians sometimes call this a seity. I mean, God doesn't need anybody or anything. Life is in himself. In other words, I am here. I am always here. I am eternal. I am powerful. I am sufficient. I am in control. And I am doing just fine. Here's why that matters. Our culture is so loud right now. Sometimes it's loud with improvements and advancements that are being made. And sometimes it is loud with total nonsense. And it is harder and harder to tell the difference between the two. 
There are times you could put on the news and go, oh my gosh, this might be the day that things are all over. Oh my gosh, I've got a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old, and I'm supposed to send them into this world in a few quick years, and how is that going to be okay? And how is the church going to be okay? And how is culture going to be okay? And how is all this stuff going to be okay? Who's going to fix all this? And God says, I am. Well, well, who's going to pour into me if I'm pouring myself out? And God says, I am. Well, how's all this going to make sense? Where, where is anybody going to find clarity right now? I am. Well, things are looking worse and worse. Who's going to get us through this time? I am. He is. Is his name. Now, that's just chapter 3. And there are many more to come in the book of Exodus. But I'll start with an overview. God has this moment with Moses. He sends Moses' brother Aaron to work with him and to be a partner, a running mate with Moses. They go to the elders of Israel and to Pharaoh and say, you are to let God's people go. They work through a series of miraculous plagues that God uses to change Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh eventually releases the nation of Israel, which is believed to be uh, approximately three to four hundred thousand people from Egypt. Egypt loses their slave force overnight. They realize a mistake they've made. They pursue Israel into the desert as Israel's leaving. This is that Red Sea moment when you, you've ever heard about the seas being parted. Shoot, we say that in sports. We say that in culture. Maybe you knew that. Maybe you didn't. It comes from this moment in the book of Exodus. God parts the Red Sea. Israel passes through and God begins to lead his people through the promised land. Now, there's a lot to be said in, in those first three chapters, but so many important things happen in that desert. Israel would wander through that desert for over 40 years, and a lot happens there, especially when you look at what happens in that desert in the context of God's great salvation story. In, in, that, in that desert, God gives his people the law. This is in that Ten Commandments movie. You may remember Charlton Heston going up on the mountain and God giving the law to his people. We would call that Torah. We would call that in our Bibles, the first books, the Pentateuch. It has a lot of names. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy would be the law that God gives Moses up on a mountain for the people of Israel. Now, there's a couple of things to think about. Okay, Bible no one told you about. Let me hit you with some stuff nobody told you about. When we think law, we think rules. We think through the law, we attain the goodness of God. But can I tell you something? Did God give the law before he delivered Israel or after? Did God give the law and say, hey, follow this, and then you're my people, and I will set you free? Or did he free them first and then give them the law? I think you know the answer. The law is not to earn God's grace even from the beginning. The law is an extension of God's grace. How do you take a group of slaves and turn them into a society? How do you take some traveling nomads who know nothing but bricks and teach them civics and sociology? The most loving and gracious thing you could do is give them a law by which they can govern themselves, a law that would lead them to flourishing. It's worth looking into, oddly enough, when you see people obey the same law today, people flourish. Families flourish and nations flourish. God gives the law as an extension of his grace to promote the freedom of his people. 
You know, also in that desert, maybe you've heard the story of manna. God, um, through the desert, provides for his people. And they obviously don't have plenty of cattle or food sources wandering this desert with them. So God provides uh, doves that they can eat and manna as well. It's funny, you're like, what is manna? Our best guess is some sort of flaky bread substance. But the cool part of manna, if you looked up the actual translation of the word manna, which is in your Bible, you look it up, it says they ate manna. But the actual Hebrew word they were using for manna is what is it? Because the first time it fell, Moses says, hey, we're supposed to eat that stuff. And very naturally, the people go, what is it? And so the slang in Israel in this day was they just called it the what is it? Hey, you going to eat some what is it this morning? Yeah, hey, this what is it is pretty good, but what is it? That's what manna was. But here's the importance of manna. This people only knew slavery and hardly knew their God. They only knew the Egyptian pantheon. How do you take a group of people and develop a relationship for them, with them? Oh, you provide for them. You care for them. You shepherd them. And one meal at a time, God built a relationship with this people, Israel, through manna. There was also a time of refining. In the desert, you would see that, um, that Israel eventually gets tired of their wandering. They get tired uh, of the what is it. They get tired of their meals. So much so that some of them even long for life back in Egypt. Now that sounds foolish to us, but as a pastor of over 15 years now, I see people do this all the time. Stepping into freedom is scary. Stepping out of structure and into a new life is frightening. And it is very common to long for the life you once knew because at least you know it. Even though it was a life where you are enslaved and entangled by your sin. Oh, Israel does the same thing and we see it. And so God has a refining to do in them. He leads them through an area in the desert that's marked by snakes. Um, the snakes are poisonous vipers. As the, as the history records, that would bite the people of Israel, and many people in Israel started losing their lives. Now you go, this is, this is far-fetched. For real? Well, let me ask you a question. If you were going to deliver salvation through a nation, what kind of lengths would you go to to make sure that nation was okay, or pure, or right, or righteous? Like, if you could deliver a cure for cancer, but you had to deliver it through a family over a course of a couple of generations, how much would you watch out for that family? What would you do to keep that family from going astray? What kind of over, what, what, what length would you, you would do some things to see to it that deliverance was brought through this family. God did the same thing by disciplining his nation, but he didn't leave them there. Um, maybe you've seen this picture. It's, it's called the caduceus. It's a medical emblem, two snakes wrapped around this pole. Well, this comes from a moment in Scripture, believe it or not. And God shows up in the middle of this crisis and he says to Moses, Hey, Moses, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to erect a pole in the desert with these two snakes fashioned around it. This, this, um, how would you describe it? This, this pole uh, with not real snakes, but with crafted snakes around it. And any time someone is bit by a snake, they can come to this caduceus. They can look at it and they will receive healing. And it happens. Oh yeah, and through Moses, the Passover feast was instilled. 
Now, uh, Passover actually happened at the beginning. The last plague in Egypt was an angel that went through Egypt, taking out the firstborn of every person, every livestock, every creature. But uh, the people of God could put the blood of a lamb on their door, and death passed over them because of that blood. Now, uh, it's a very key moment in Scripture. But I want to talk to you about all of these moments. We've got the refining, we've got the law, we've got the manna, we've got the Passover. These are all great moments from Exodus. These are all Moses moments. I mean, for crying out loud, if, if you had a who's who or a Mount Rushmore in Israel, Moses is up there. Abraham, Moses, David, I don't know who else would be on it, but without a doubt, if you ask first century Jewish people, when Jesus showed up, who's in the Hall of Fame? Moses was there. But here's the Bible no one told you about. And this is where we want to take you a little farther in your knowledge of Scripture. Here's what you need to know. The greatest thing Moses did was point to Jesus. I can describe it like this. We've been talking about Scripture is the story of God's rescue and redemption of all of humanity. And so, well before Jesus ever showed up, there are times when Jesus comes breaking through in the story. You can think about it like this. Uh, think Christmas with me. Not, not biblical Christmas. I'm talking cultural Christmas. I'm talking the day after Thanksgiving in America in 2021 when you go to any store and it's decked out in Christmas attire and you've got that neighbor who, who's already set up all the Christmas lights on there. He, in our culture, well before Christmas ever gets here, Christmas comes breaking through in a thousand different expressions. Am I right? I mean, in our family, we sit down after Thanksgiving and we make a calendar of all the cool things that we want to do. We want to go to that candy cane lane in, in West Chula. We want to go and make our almond family pasta sauce. We want to watch some certain movies, including Die Hard, that is now a Christian, or Christian tradition, an almond family tradition. We want to do all sorts of different things. I bet you're the same way. But if you observe our culture, well before Christmas, Christmas comes breaking through. In the narrative of Scripture, well before Jesus and salvation, history cannot hold in the gospel. And in parts and in pieces, it comes breaking through. It does so in the exodus of God's people in chapter 3 here. Can I show you a few things? We talked about how Moses gave the law. But that was just pointing to what Jesus would ultimately do. Hebrews 10, 16 says, This is the covenant I will make with them after these days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write it on their minds. See, Moses gave an actual tangible law you can follow. But what this scripture says is in Christ, a new birth happens in you. When you say yes to Jesus, I want him, I want to trade my insufficiency for his sufficiency, I want to give him, I want to give him my failure and receive his faithfulness, a miracle happens in you where the power of God's heart is now written on yours. Your mind is renewed. Think of John 3, Jesus and Nicodemus, and Jesus is trying to explain him. When you receive Christ, a new birth happens in you. This is what he's talking about. The way of God is written on your soul. You get a brand new 
conscience. It's like your soul is a guitar and it is brought in tune with the ways of God. Yeah, Moses brought the law. Jesus writes the law on our hearts. It goes on in John 6, 32. Jesus says this. Very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread that... Uh, the, for the bread of God is bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus looks at the manna that God gave people through Moses and he says, a new bread is here. Yeah, Moses gave you tangible bread to eat, but I'm the bread of life. And so when you fellowship with me and you find yourself in relationship with me, you are sustained, you are cared for, and you are truly satisfied. One thing we know about bread is it satisfies. Come on now. Bread sticks, garlic knots, fresh bread, warm bread, raisin bread, muffin bread. I'll go on with you. What do they all have in common? They satisfy. What does Jesus say here? He says, yeah, Moses and that manna, it was really just pointing to me when one day you could find true satisfaction for your soul. Jesus even took that moment, that bizarre moment with the caduceus and the snakes that would lift up. Remember when people were biting, were bitten and they were dying, they could look to the snakes on the pole and live. Jesus goes, yeah, that was actually just pointing to me. John 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In that time, people could look to those snakes and be healed. Now we look to Jesus lifted up on a cross and we find everything we've been looking for. I save the Passover for last because it's where all of these things come together. <laughs> Jesus has a last Passover meal with his disciples. You can read about it in John 13. And he says, you know the Passover? Yeah, that was about me. Because in that day, remember, blood was painted over doorways. So death would pass over people. Well, Jesus says, now it is my blood. And my blood's going to be spilled. And it is going to make a day where death will no longer have authority in your life. Here's the Bible no one told you about. All of those moments in Moses' life, they are history. They happened. But they were salvation breaking through in history that would one day ultimately point to Jesus on a cross when all of these moments found their true fulfillment. Now, Jesus follower, that's a lot of Bible information. What do we do with that? I'll tell you a few things. You could sum it all up by saying this. Through Moses, salvation was achieved. But through Jesus, salvation is received. Moses said, here is the law. You can follow the law. It'll bring you to wholeness. But what does the law really do, for example? I, I haven't met anybody who can perfectly follow the law. As a matter of fact, the law just shows us how imperfect we truly are. And that and enter our need for Jesus. Enter our need to have a rescuer who saves us from sin, who brings us to new life that we could never create for ourselves, that we could never go and get. See, through Moses, life and light and eternity were to be achieved, but through Jesus, they're offered to us as a gift to be received. What does that mean for us? Well, let me start here. Cleaning up your act 
is not being saved. You know, I quit smoking and, you know, we had a drinking problem and I've finally taken care of that and I'm doing a little bit better and I've been honest. I've been in the home more often lately and I remember old grandma telling me I needed Jesus and I needed to follow the rules and I, I grew up in that school and they told me about a God who was all about these rules and I didn't really want that for a while, but now I'm kind of getting things together and shoot, I'm even going to church now and, and I'm there and I attend and they want me to serve and so I'm going to be at the next thing and I'm going to bring a friend and uh, me and the Lord finally got things right. Um, no, you didn't. That is not salvation. Salvation is received, not achieved. And I love you too much to let you think because you're doing good things now, you've laid hold of eternal life in Jesus. Eternal life happens when you lay down your life. It is not about getting better at rule following. Oh, don't get me wrong, that is a product of salvation, but it is not being saved itself. Salvation comes from laying down your life and picking up Christ's. It is saying, here is my failure. I could never do this on my own. I keep making a mess of it. Jesus, I don't even, I don't even stand a chance when I compare myself to what God really wants for me. But I know you did. So I want to make the divine trade. My failure for your faithfulness. I want to hand you the keys to my life. I want to give you the pen, Jesus, and let you write the story because I don't want to write it myself. That, my friend, is where salvation happens. That is receiving the gift of God's grace through Christ. What do we do with this? Well, let me ask you something if you're a Jesus follower. What do you usually do after you sin? I mean, what do you do? What is your go-to response when you find yourself entangled in a situation that you know you weren't supposed to? What's your go-to response when you find yourself tangled in a situation you know you're not supposed to go through and it's the fifth time in 2021 that it's happened and you swore off of it four times and you find yourself right back there? What do you do? Is your habit to withdraw from God Wait till you've had a few good days of living things out appropriately and then kind of go back into Scripture, back into your Bible, and, and back towards faith. Because my friends, in Jesus, He already fulfilled all the requirements of the law on your behalf. See, in Jesus, you can run to God when you sin. You don't have to run away from Him. In Jesus, salvation is received. It was never about how good you were, meaning when you are bad in your own view, your status has not changed because you cannot out-sin God's grace in Christ. What is the outcome? It means when I sin, I take my sin to God because Jesus has already given me the gift. He's already cleansed me of sin. God sees me as spotless, and now He is a heavenly Father that we said is already committed to my freedom and deliverance. When I sin, the God up there in Christ is not going, come on, Almond. How many, how, many, how many times are you going to do this? No, when, when I sin, I have a heavenly Father who longs to see me free, who longs to see me flourish, so much so He's willing to work on my sins with me. Jesus follower, what do we do with this? Well, my question is, what do you do with the commandments of God today? That's a good one, though, isn't it? Okay, Matt, you're telling me uh, Jesus did it all for me. Moses gave some rules. They were good rules, but Jesus fulfilled the rules, and it's not about the rules. 
So what do I do with the commandments of God? Well, I want to take you back to Israel. The rules are not what claimed Israel as God's people. The rules were not what saved them. God had already claimed them. He had already saved them. Oh, the rules, they were a gift of grace to promote their flourishing and freedom. My friends, they are that in our lives today. I heard it said like this, for the Jesus follower, the law causes us to go running to grace. But when you truly experience grace, it causes you to go running back to the law for more of the God who's behind it. My friends, that's what we do today. Uh, we don't obey to be saved. We obey because we're saved. And the same God who offers us salvation offers us real tangible hope in his life and on his path in our lives today through his law. My friends, salvation is received, not achieved. And today, you can simply walk in the freedom that's been offered to you. Love you guys. Peace.